0: Father God, we praise you so much for your care and your love for us. You are an amazing God. Your word is unparalleled. There is nothing like it in the world, Lord, and we thank you for it. We pray that you would bless this time that we have together. We pray that you would bless your word as it goes out, and we just thank you so much for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So how's everybody today? Okay. I'm sure not everyone is, because, you know, that's the way things go, but that's all right. So, I'm preaching over Genesis chapter 10, which is one big genealogy. Are you excited? Yeah, baby, genealogy, woo-hoo! Last week, Johnny, I thought, did an excellent job going over uh, Genesis chapter 9, talking about Noah, and couple different things that he brought out, but the big thing at the end that we'll also touch on here is about the hope that we have in Christ, and he related that hope to our own sinful nature and that whole process of sanctification and how we just have to submit to God and allow his spirit to continue to work on us. So Genesis chapter 10 is kind of an interesting book. It's, it's a big genealogy and so why is it important to us and why is it important historically? Or is it important historically, right? Hey Zach, there's a couple of uh, slides and he's holding his baby, which is awesome. The first one to William F. Albright. He's a scholar who was the foremost expert in biblical archeology. span And he started off in a school of thought that said there was no valid historical information that you could get from the Old Testament, right? That's the training that he had. That's how he came up through college and as he started doing his work. He he spoke multiple ancient languages. I mean, the guy is brilliant. And over time, as more and more discoveries wore on, this is what he said. The excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th century, certain phases which still appear periodically, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of the innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. And that was, when did he write this? 1930, 1940, something like that. It's just continued over the years to get more and more. Every time they find new discoveries, it shows that, oh, the Bible was accurate in this, more accurate than anything else. Like even when you talk about Daniel and there's King Belshazzar, for years and years and years, Belshazzar never showed up, but they had his father. And so they were like, well, this, this king never existed. And then they found a cylinder from the Persian Empire that listed the fact that for 10 years, in the last 10 years of his father's reign, he co-regented with his son Belshazzar. Things like that. And everybody's like, oh, guess the Bible was right again. One more quote. This is about Genesis 10 specifically. And this is called the Table of Nations. This is how people describe this particular genealogy. It stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. And that was actually put in in Young's analytical concordance to the Bible, that quote. And he contributed a bunch of information to that, even though he was not a practicing Christian but as he continued to study and continued to see the bible was his like he could trust that for historical information so why does he say that it stands in ancient literature alone what does it do well it basically purports to say this is where all the nations of the world came from it's like it's like a big claim and we have a bunch of documents and information from the Mesopotamian area around the same time that this was written and before. Nobody else tried to do that. Nobody else tried to say anything like that. And like he mentions, the Greeks kind of tried to say where people were, but there was a particular Greek historian named Herodotus who's known as the father of history. And he basically uses this information as his basis for how he describes where people groups live and went. And we'll figure out why it's even important that we know this. Later on, like, okay, so this tells us where all the nations came from, big deal. How does that help us today? Now, there's been numerous attempts by critical historians to discredit the accuracy of the Bible. We've talked about that before. Like, for example, Isaiah, he prophesied about what he called Elam, which is Persia. And as we see in the table of nations, he called it by the name Elam, which is one of the sons listed in this genealogy. Why did he use that name? Well, Persia never didn't show up on the scene for a hundred years after he prophesied that. Same with Daniel. Daniel prophesied about two kingdoms that were way after he was alive. So critical scholars try to say, someone wrote this part of Daniel later and then moved it back here and redacted it in so that it looks like there was prophecy when there really wasn't any prophecy. So one of, the reason, one of the ways that you combat that is you look at all of the other information in that book and you tie it into historical things and you see that, well, they, they couldn't have done that because if they'd have done that, they'd have called these nations by this name instead of the name they used because when they wrote, if they wrote it in the future, then these nations didn't exist anymore and they wouldn't have known about them. So when, you, when we read through this, you're going to see a lot of weird names in here, and according to the nations, and then the question, um, I was watching a sermon by Chuck Missler, and he was talking about this, and a point that he made was, why are there all these crazy names of nations in the Bible, right? It's because of us. It's because we changed the names of things. So there was a city in Russia called Petrograd, which then became St. Petersburg, and then became Leningrad, and now it's St. Petersburg. But guess what never changes? The names of our ancestors. So if I name this nation or this line by the ancestor, that's never going to change no matter how long in the future we go. And that's what the Bible does. It uses the names of the ancestors as opposed to the name of a particular city. Because even when we talk about the Byzantium, the head of the Byzantine Empire, which then became Constantinople, and today is Istanbul, all dependent on who was in charge of the city. So people that grew up in Istanbul, do they know that they were Byzantium? I don't know. So how do we prove these things out as we go through this? Three ways, right? Archaeology, you got tablets, you got ruins, you have monuments, you have cylinders, you have all these things that you can look at. History, we have... Ancient historians like Herodotus and Josephus and Hesiod and all these other people that were back then. And another way that we do it now is through genetics. Does anyone know what haploid groups are? Anybody heard of 23andMe or Ancestry.com, right? What do they do? You give them your DNA and they tell you what people groups were in your ancestry. Well, it turns out that for an individual person, the amount of genetic information that changes between you and your forebears is a tiny, tiny amount at the end of a chain. So there's called matrilineal from the mother and patrilineal lines from the father. And large chunks of those have been classified by alphabetic letters, and they can tell where the people groups came from. So you can trace things back, generations and generations and generations and generations, and it turns out that applies in this. We can actually look at haploid groups that are unique to certain people groups in the world, and then you can find out where they went. And it gets kind of interesting when you see some of the really strange ones. Like for example, there's a, it's called the H1 haploid group, and it's mostly found in Northern Africa. It's also present in the Cherokee tribes in the United States, nowhere else. Just there. So you got Northern Africa and the Cherokees. And they're like, how did they get there? Well, I think it was the Tower of Babel, but that's just me. Also, another thing that we use besides these in history is linguistics, right? So when they look at all these names of the places that King Solomon and King David, they traded with, right? They talk about Ophir, where there's gold, right? Ophir. What was Ophir? Well, we figure it was India. Why do we figure it was India? Well, one of the things that's listed that came from Ophir were parrots. But the Hebrew word for parrot is the Tamil word for parrot from India. So you can start to find all these linguistic name characteristics where words come up through the history that they're using the same words. And so it's more links. So you just start compiling all this information that helps us understand where these people groups went. So let's start in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. And I'm in the New King James Version. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. So he begins with Japheth, which for the purposes of... What we're doing, he's the least important one. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. And then he goes on to the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. And from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So we, we know some of the things about some of these names and where they went. And I'm not going to be exhaustive in trying to go into this, but it's interesting to know. There's 14 names for, under J- Japheth. Gomer, based on Herodotus and Plutarch, Went into Ashkenaz, in Germany. Josephus says that Riphtha was all of most of Europe, and Togarma was Armenia, Turkey, and Turkestan. Magog is one that does show up in the Bible, Gog and Magog. This is in prophecy. So if you want to understand Ezekiel 38 and 39, you need to know who Magog was. Well, historically, the Greeks called them the Scythians, and the Scythians. Uh, Hesiod and Herodotus wrote a lot about him, and those two were contemporary with Ezekiel. So while he was writing about Gog and Magog, they were writing about the Scythians. They ruled the southern steppes of Russia from the 10th BC all the way to the 3rd uh, 3rd century BC, from Ukraine all the way to China. And they are the Russians. So native Russians are descended from the Scythians and that whole area. And they developed the thing that we like to call the scorched earth theory or defense in depth that the Russians used to defeat Napoleon and Hitler. They would retreat and destroy everything as they went. That was developed by the Scythians who were nomadic and no one could ever conquer them. When they fell, they fell from internal struggle, not from external pressure. So it's kind of interesting that even those traditions stayed with the people and continued to move forward. And we have Madi, which are the Medes, Darius the Mede, as we have in Daniel, right? Well, what, who are the Medes today? Well, they're the Kurds. They're a people without a country. They're in multiple countries, but they don't have a country. And all the countries that they're in, everybody thinks they're, they're a thorn in their side, and they try to get rid of them. But that's where the Medes are today. Javan, that's Iona, or Greece. And then you have Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. Tarshish is an interesting one. Remember Jonah said that he didn't want to go preach to Nineveh, so he fled to Tarshish? Where was Tarshish? It's a long way away, but it says that Tarshish, they got tin from Tarshish. There's only one place where you get tin, and that's in England. So there's a lot of scholars who believe Tarshish was actually England and Cornwall. And based on excavations around Stonehenge, they found that they had a worldwide active trade going on during the Bronze Age. So it, it makes sense. But it's interesting, and there's some, we're not going to get into that, but there's some interesting uh, prophetic issues that come up if England is Tarshish and the role that England can play because of the imagery that's used and the fact that England always uses this lion symbology for the crown, it all ties in so that's interesting, but hopefully we'll do that one of these days when we decide to go through a book like Ezekiel. Just ask Joel, bug him, for scheduling. (laughs) So we have Tubal, Meshach, and Tiris. Tubal and Meshach were both eastern Anatolia, which is two-thirds of what Turkey is today, and Tiris was the Etruscans in Italy. So that's just interesting, right? We don't We don't necessarily need to know all that. And at the time that they spread out, their lines were pure from their progenitors, but now people are mixed all over the place. There's a lot of these sons that had nations. We have no idea where they went, where they wound up. We know, for example, Asher, as we get down here into Shem, those are the Assyrians. The Assyrians have pretty much stayed in one area ever since the time... You know, thousands of years ago. And it's one area in the northern Middle East area. They're still there today. At one point, they got knocked down to 1,500 people because they were getting wiped out. Now they're up to about 15,000. So there's still historically focused, genetically pure Assyrians running around today that you would just never know. It's interesting. Let's go on to Ham. He's he was the cursed son. So let's talk about something Johnny brought up. He didn't go into a bunch of depth. I also am not going to go into a bunch of depth about all these crazy side theories about what happened. Because they get a little weird. But it's interesting. There is one thing I want to point out. So that's Genesis 9:22 through 25. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both of their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him Then he said cursed be Canaan a servant of the servants of servant of servants he shall be to his brothers So the interesting thing to note here is that he cursed Canaan He didn't curse any of Ham's other sons. Ham had other sons, just the one, which becomes super important because when we think of the word Canaan, we don't think of the son of Ham. We think of a whole area of a bunch of nations that were Israel's traditional enemy. And when you go through and you see the war that happens through Joshua as they take over the promised land and they destroy all the nations of Canaan, those are also tied back to the giants in the land that we talked about in Genesis chapter 6 and following. Because all of the nations that God says wipe out utterly are the Rephaites, the Anakites, and they're basically all Nephilim nations. They're tied to the Nephilim nations, which is related to their pagan practices, the sorcery that they practice, the sacrifice that they practice, all of these things that they did. And we'll talk about that. Exactly. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took wives from whoever they pleased. And all of those nations, because there were other nations in the area, for example, um, Edom and Moab, where God said, don't wipe them out. Leave them alone. But They were in the same region. So it was very specific, the ones that God said, I want men, women, children, cattle, everything. Just get rid of all of it which is really impacts our sensibilities today, and we're like, how could God just wipe out whole people groups? Well, to be blunt, they brought it on themselves, so that's kind of how that works. Okay, Genesis 10, 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabaktah. and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the principal city. Mizriam begot Ludum, Anamin, Lehabim, Naphtu, uh, sorry, him. Pathrusim and Kalusim, from whom came the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the borders of the Canaanites from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. Which one? <laughs> I'm going to say I'm 10 times fast. You guys follow along. So Cush is Ethiopia, Kassites, and east of Assyria. The word Mizriam in some translations, I don't know if any of you have any of these translations, they just translate Mizriam as Egypt. Mizriam is a double word. It means upper and lower Egypt. And when you watch these old movies with the Egyptians and they have the big headdresses and they have the red and the white, well, the red was one of the kingdoms and the white was the other. And when they got together, they mixed their headdresses together. So that shows that they are a combined Egyptian nation. But that's what Mizraim was. Also, the Philistines came out of Mizraim. So it's interesting that the word Philistine by the Greeks, when they, and I think it was 132 AD, there was another Jewish revolt and the people in charge said in roman in Rome said we 're not going to deal with these people anymore, so they leveled Jerusalem right in seventy a d they leveled the temple in one thirty a d or so they leveled Jerusalem they made it a death penalty for any Jews to be found in the area, and that was when the great what is called the Jewish diaspora where they dispersed all over the world happened and the The, the the Romans named it Palestine, which was a Roman change of the word Philistine, because Philistines, they knew, were the enemies of Israel, so they did it as a way to say, you guys are no longer going to be here. We're giving this land to your enemies. So the Romans are actually the, the ones that named it Palestine. And there's Genetically or ancestrally, there's two different groups of people. There's the the sons of Mizraim, so the Palestinians were not Ishmaelites. Remember, everybody says people of Arabia came from Ishmael, who was whose brother? Isaac's brother, which we get to in a few chapters, right? So Abraham had... They had, they had Ishmael and his children were also blessed by God. And God said, I'm also going to make you into a nation. And so they were the Arab bloodline. But the Philistines were not the same bloodline. They came from Cush. They didn't come from this bloodline. The problem is that all these tribes intermixed and no one kept any records. So we have really no idea really who's who. They're just kind of all in a big melting pot right now. So put was Ethiopia, North Africa, and then we have Canaan, which we've, we've read many, many, many times about things related to Canaan. But in case you missed it, in verse 19, those are the borders of the promised land that God laid out way back here before he ever gave them to Moses and said, here's the boundaries of the promised land. So in verse 19, the border of the Canaanite was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and as far as Lasha. So what happened is, is that he laid out Canaan's lands, and then when children of Israel came, he said, I'm giving you the land of the Canaanites. So here's the land I already set out, this is what you get. and again Canaan's descendants are outlined more in this passage because they're the traditional enemies of Israel. So let's go on to Shem. So this is Genesis 10:22 or I'm sorry 10:21. And children were also born to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Our fact said, Begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Shelef, Hazamarveth, Jera, Haderim, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abmiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. So these names are pretty much mostly useful for Bible trivia. And if you really want to be mean to your kids when you name them, you can do that too. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All these were the sons of Joktan, And their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. So let's pick out a few things in there. So Elam is Persia which is current Iran. And those people have been there forever. Asher was Assyria. So Arphaxad is the one that's important for a lot of reasons to Christians. His sons, Salah, Eber, Peleg. Then it goes Ru, Sarag, Nahor, Terah, and Abram, which became Abraham. So Arphaxad is the line of Christ that goes through the whole thing. Lud and Aram. So Peleg, it says, it was divided at Babel, and there's some people that say that that must have been, you know, continental drift. But we believe it was just the Tower of Babel. God divided the nations, and He set them up in His boundaries that He's created. And we'll look a little bit more at that. Genesis 10:32. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations, and from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So just for an interesting because I don't want to get into this for all of them, but, Zach, did you put up that last map thing? This is the haploid distribution of the children of our faxad through genetics. This is where all those people wound up. It's a huge portion of the Earth. Whereas Asher has one little area that they're not found anywhere else. That's where they are, and they've been there for you know as long as we know. So that's just interesting to note some of the ways that we can scientifically show and prove out some of this stuff depending on how the people groups intermixed and what kind of genetic um, information we have. So that's just something to put in the back of your head. It's not really that important for daily living. (laughs) So now we have all of these laid out for us and we have these nations. So the interesting thing is that there were 26 names under Shem, 14 names under Ham, or, uh, Japheth and 30 names under Ham. That total, 70 names. Is that important? Well, it's interesting because there were 70 families that entered into captivity in the Jews. So 70 families of Israelites, there were 70 names here. They entered the families entered Egypt in Genesis 46:10. But in Deuteronomy 32, 7, and 8, God lays out the boundaries of the nations. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. So the boundaries of the nations are not set because the nations decide through manifest destiny or whatever else they want to say how big they're going to get. Deuteronomy 32 says God set the boundaries of the nations and he did it in a way tied to the families of the children of Israel that we don't understand. But that's what the scripture says. So it is interesting that number is 70. 70. Now, the number of nations is listed in the Bible three times. One time it's listed for 66, one time 75, Stephen the martyr, he says this, and then 70 here. So it's like, well, why are they different numbers? Well, they're different numbers because Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, Jacob's two sons, who are not, right, they're his, I'm sorry, Joseph's two sons, they were not, they were not part of the 12, right? But they are, they are part of the, the tribes. So when you add those numbers in, you get 70 from the 66. And the other one, if you take Joseph's grandchildren that are also listed in the Septuagint version of the scripture, that gets it to 75. So all the numbers do reconcile based on the actual people that were there. So the Bible, as we can see, is ridiculously accurate. When it comes to history, it's unbelievable the amount of archaeological finds that continue to, to prove it out. And that Genesis 10 is unique in the ancient world, and, they can, and even now with our modern genetic science, we can like trace things out and prove out that, yeah, these people did go here. And there's no other document in ancient history that, sh- that does that. There's a big idea, however, that's through all of this. And this idea is that God preserved the line of Christ. So what I want people to do is dwell on the fact that right before this chapter, all life on the planet except for one family was wiped out. But Christ's line goes all the way back to Adam, right? It doesn't stop at Noah. It goes back to Adam. So there's the preservation of that line. And now we get here. we have the dispersion of people that happened that Joel is going to preach on about the Tower of Babel. And all of the things that happened with the children of Israel, if you read first and Second Chronicles and first and Second kings, it doesn't matter if it's Judah or Israel, because the kingdoms were split. So and so became king, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they worshiped the Asherah poles, and they did worship under every spreading tree, and they did all these things. And God continued to punish them and punish them and punish them, and they went into exile in Babylon, and they had enemies come in and destroy different parts of the countries and wipe people out. And through all of that, God preserved the line of Christ. He preserved it through David and on down the line. If we jump back a little bit, and we talk about one of the characters that I'm sure Joel will have more to say about, and that is Nimrod that's listed in here, right? So it says in Genesis 10, 8, Cush begot Nimrod, began to be a mighty one on the earth. This guy built Babel, which is, became Babylon, he also built Nineveh, which we know from the story of Jonah and other places. There's other prophecies against Nineveh by the minor and major prophets. Um, he, he created this huge empire that became the Babylonian Empire. One guy. That's, it's all attributed to him as this mighty hunter on the Lord. And the Babylonians are who now? Does anybody know who they are now? Where's Babylon. It's in Iraq, right? Do you know that the city of Babylon is being rebuilt? Saddam Hussein created a giant palace right in the middle of it, overlooking the ruins that are being reconstructed. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon. All this stuff plays into into uh, prophecy. That that city is still around in physical form today and is now being rebuilt with tons of money. Even though Saddam Hussein and those guys are all gone not in power, the work still continues, which is very interesting. We find more and more information that goes on related to Genesis chapter six and what the other religions, the Mesopotamian religions, Going, what they were doing at the same time. And the fact that their worldviews about the counsels of God and about the things that were going on were the same as what was in the Bible, except they had different names for things, and they didn't have a Yahweh. So there's New Old Testament work where God is basically throwing shade at these other religions, saying, yeah, you guys have your counsels of angels, but you don't, you're not in charge. God's in charge and he's gonna prove that you're not in charge because he's going to destroy your your religions, and he prophesied against all these nations. So as we read through something like this, and we see the history of these nations, we can look back and say, who is that today? Some prophetic perspective. It's like I said, if you wanna understand Ezekiel 38 and 39, you need to know who Magog is, and then you need to understand where that is in the world. Oh, that's Russia. and. The Sinites that's listed in here, anyone ever heard of the Sino-Russian alliance? That's China-Russia alliance. Sinites became Chinese. So all these things tie back, backward and forward in prophecy. It's, and it just blows your mind, you know? And again, like I've mentioned before, these are all rabbit trails. Like you could dive your whole life into just looking at prophecy all day long and neglect your family and be a bad person. So don't do that. <laughs> Say right now. So the thing about these nations and especially the Canaanites is that there was a constant assault by the fallen sons of God through their teaching and promoting of idolatry, sorcery, sacrifice, other detestable practices. That's what you're reading about in Kings and Chronicles. That's where you'll get one son who says he did right in the eyes of the Lord. He tore down all the Asherah poles and he destroyed all the prophets and he did this and he did that. And then it'll say, but he didn't fully follow the Lord. He left all the high places and the people still sacrificed under the trees. And so there was all of these nature worship and celestial body worship that was going on. There were sacrifices, there was temple prostitution, all these things that God hated, rightly. The people were being led into these, and they were being taught these things. And this all comes from the fallen enemy. And that's what God provided through all of that, through the divided kingdoms. He brought drought, famine, foreign invaders, exile, destruction of Jerusalem, and multiple times he did this to the people. And then they're And there's like 10 tribes of Israel that are lost. They're called the lost tribes today. We don't know where they went after their diaspora. We have no idea. We won't know until Revelation when God brings 144,000 people, 12,000 from each of the 10, 12 tribes of Israel together as a remnant of Israel. So there's things that, we can see in history happening right now that have not been fulfilled, but God tells us are gonna be fulfilled. And this is where we get back to what Johnny was talking about. And this is where we talk about hope. So the fact that God recorded all this information for us, he preserved Christ and the line of Christ through all of these calamities and all of these, I mean, the nation of Israel, 132 AD, they're split in the world. When do they become a nation again? 1948, right? That's a long time for a people group to maintain its identity. God preserved it. How many Hittites are running around? If they're there, they don't know that they're Hittites. They don't have any Hittite practices. There's the national identity of all of these ancient people groups is mostly gone. There are a few exceptions, like the Assyrians. They know they're Assyrians. They have some practices. But the Jews know who they are, and they've kept their traditions. They've kept their practices. They've kept the law. And God has preserved them because he promised he would do so. He made a promise, and so far he has kept it. He made promises to us. He's made promises to us in the future. And that whole fight that we were talking about last week between our flesh, the sin that we have to fight with on a daily basis, and the redemption of God is the battle that's happening in our spirit and in our, in our bodies today. And that battle is also the victories based on promises. God's promising a redemption that we see and read about but we don't fully have yet. How many people don't sin? Put my hand down. Right? If I didn't sin, then maybe that prophecy would have been fully fulfilled and I would already be glorified. Well, I'd be dead, thanks. So that's not happening yet. We have to fight this battle on a daily basis, on an ongoing basis. But the hope that we have is the fact that God's word gives us an incredible wealth, especially in the Old Testament, of things God has done that we look at we can see and we can look around in the world, and we can say, well, that's actually born out. There's people that have spent their whole life doing what? Study genetic ancestry. That's all they do. And there's hundreds of haploid groups, and they're like dividing down. It's like the Han Chinese have 75% of this haploid group and 34% of this one, and blah, 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 all the way down to the nth degree. That's all they do. That's their life. That's their career. And it's one thing that shows the truth and veracity of the Scripture as it's been given to us. And archaeologists, another thing, they do the same thing. They do all this work, and what do they show? Well, as, as a side effect of their work, it proves that the Bible is accurate over and over and over again. It's just amazing. But all of that is hope fulfilled. When God told the Israelites, this is going to be your, na- your promised land, he then fulfilled it. But Moses didn't get to see it. He didn't get to go in the promised land, and neither did a whole generation that didn't show faith. But God did fulfill that hope through Joshua, right? And when he gives us the scripture who tells us about Jesus and tells us that if you submit your life to Christ and you accept him as your Lord and Savior, he will forgive you for your sins, and that eventually that will culminate in total redemption of not only yourself but the world itself, the physical world, because God's redemption is not just spiritual. God is not just spiritual. He also is going to redeem the universe, the world itself. And we have to remember that. And God even cares about animals. For example, my wife and I were reading, and we were reading, we read the book of Jonah, and he was telling Jonah, he's like, there's 120,000 people in Nineveh and much cattle. Should I not care about that great city? He threw that in. And there's laws about treating your animals properly. God cares about all of it, not just us. It's not just us, right? Jesus died for us, but the full redemption is gonna be the entire world. If the worship team, if you guys would mind joining me. Okay, thanks Steph. So when you talk about this hope, and we can see the hopes that God fulfilled in the past, And the things that we look to in the future, that's where this can actually help our faith on a daily basis. This is where it can help us with our marriage and our own walk on a daily basis, our family, our church, because we know that we can trust that what God is telling us is going to happen. He will fulfill it. He's fulfilled it every single time. And we have thousands of years of testimony borne out by not just the Bible, but by other historians that it, it happened. We got a dog? Yeah. Yeah. I like dogs. (laughs) So all that God did and is doing in the nations, he shows us he can be trusted. And remember the other thing. Those nations all have their own son of God, fallen son of God who's being punished. Remember what we heard when Daniel said, Praise to God, and a couple weeks later, Gabriel shows up, and he says, well, I started coming to you as soon as you prayed, but the prince of Persia, he held me captive, and Michael, the archangel, came and freed me from him. The prince of Persia is another celestial being who is in charge of the country of Persia, and God said he gave all these nations under the control of them, but it was a punishment, and then he pulled his own nation of Israel And said, This will be my special nation, regardless of what you guys are going to do with your nations. And then those nations get punished when they do bad things. And all of this stuff is laid out for us. So, again, I want you to think about all the stuff that God has done in the past, all of the things that He has said He would do and then did. And even the things that He did that He told us that He didn't tell us in advance, like creating the universe, He didn't tell us in advance because we weren't here. So, let's just focus on that. Focus on God's promises and the fact that he will he will always fulfill those promises. And that's what we have to hold on to.